Welcome to Archery Talk 101 podcast, your guide to better archery skills. We'll bring you the latest tips, tricks, and expert advice, but that's not all. We'll also have interviews with top archers and industry professionals and reviews of the latest gear and equipment and much more. Hey, what's it like to make videos for a living and uh, be out in the outdoors and taking all kinds of videos and, and have producing such great products? Well, we're going to find out today on Arch Talk 101. I'm going to be your host today. My name is Roy, and I have Isaac uh, Snow on the line with us, and we're going to talk about what it takes to uh, create some good quality videos, as well as talk about his archery ventures and other things as we get along there. Um, just to let everybody know, uh, you can uh, watch this video on the Arch Talk 101 Facebook group. We, we go live in that group. You can also watch it on my YouTube channel, Learn to Fix It Yourself. And the audio part comes out on Spotify and on Audible. You can get it there. So just go out there and, and uh, search for Arch Talk 101, and you'll be able to listen to it or watch it. So, Isaac, welcome to the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh Introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about about yourself. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm a big game hunting guide in Montana right now. Uh, I've only been out here for about a year now, and really uh, getting my teeth cut on the, the western hunting side of things with elk and mule deer, bear, lion, all that stuff, which I've I've have some experience in in the past, but um, really kind of getting my fingers into it now and. And taking care of a ranch, uh, it's about a 10,000 acre ranch. And I just basically manage it primarily for the hunting and any type of, uh, I guess, string that we might have to pull in order to get one of the landowners a tag or something like that. I'm in charge of guiding those hunts. Like this year we offered, uh, I think we, we gave up six cow hunts. Uh, it's a program the state of Montana has where uh, you apply for these cow tags, and in return, my owners got bull tags. So uh, that that was really my first season here in Montana. But uh, originally, I I managed a ranch uh, in Mo uh, Missouri for about 13 years. It was about a 3,500 acre piece of property, had a thousand acre private lake on the eastern border. Really, it was. It was the dream farm as far as just being set up, and I feel like it. It was, it was my blessing and my platform to learn off of because I started there at eighteen and I was young and green. And luckily, my my bosses, my owners, they really just kind of gave me the reins on it. They always trusted my judgment because I had been managing ranches with my dad since I was fourteen, fifteen years old, and I I. I kind of knew the ropes and so they tossed it in my lap and and I ran with it and over the course of that 13 years we you know I, I don't know the exact numbers but I mean dozens of Boone and Crockett whitetails that I was able to partake and and guide and and two over 200 and you know kind of kind of I guess accomplished all the goals that I wanted to accomplish in the in the whitetail management world and also all that time doing filming and photography and working on projects with with other people and and that's why I've kind of I guess graduated up onto the western ranches trying to challenge my abilities and learn new things and plant new species of food plots or whatever you want to call them they're not really food plots here but uh 
hay fields and stuff. So it's all very interesting. I'm very blessed to have been able to do what I do. And uh, I guess been able to learn just without without anybody hovering over me. I've always had had free reign to to learn and explore and experiment in different ways on managing a ranch or with photography and in, in the ways that I see please, you know. So that, that's that's always a good when they just say, here, go. <laughs> you're right. Right. It, but you still have to deliver. So that's right. kind of where the, the stress plate comes in, you know. Yeah. You just got to, if you don't deliver, they're not going to say go no more. They're going to say stop and go away. <laughs> right. They're going to start giving you chores. <laughs> yeah. So. so if somebody wanted to hunt in Montana, how would they get a hold of you? Um. So right now, everything I do is totally private. Um, I, I am a licensed guide here and I'm, I'm not opposed to doing some guiding, uh, in the future, but right now my hands are so full with just my operation, just my management operation that I'm not, I'm not looking to take any clients right now. Okay. Uh, and I, I guess I don't, I don't really have the confidence yet either. I would like to get three years under my belt before I start taking under other people out to try and pursue Western game. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, when you get ready for that, Hey, let's get you back on and we'll talk about uh, getting, getting people to up there to Montana. I imagine they've got a lot of nice animals up there to, to shoot. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the area that I'm in, the ranch that I run is a really interesting part of Montana because uh, about, I mean, I, I want to say I heard in 1984, back in 1984, there were no elk in this region of Montana due to market hunting at the turn of the 19th century, turn of the 20th century, sorry. And um, there was no elk. They were basically completely eradicated from this region. And in the early 80s, there was a small herd of cows and calves that migrated down from the Missouri breaks in northern Montana. And there was like 20, 25 of them, and they got reestablished in the Little Wolf Mountains where we're at now. And now it is off the charts. I mean, it's unbelievable, the not just the number, but the how well the elk and mule deer are thriving. And just the size of these bulls are unlike anything I've seen. Just their the, the way they carry their mass and and the sheer numbers of them is is pretty incredible. It's a pretty special place. Yeah, that's pretty good. They just kind of migrated. You didn't have to uh, put them in there. They just kind of come down and and just going crazy because great right. area and and no no competition. They can grow as big as they want. Right, and that's I guess that's probably the most interesting part. Uh, being out here is the the ranch that I'm running. The deed hadn't changed hands on this property for over a hundred years. It was just an operating cattle ranch, and that was it. You know the I guess the cowboy way of hunting was all they ever really did so now i'm getting to see you know what i can do with the property to really enhance it to really pull that wildlife in now that it's not a for-profit ranch we can we can really try and turn it into yellowstone in any way we can by incorporating water or you know hay fields and stuff like that that will really draw those animals in and hopefully even have a resident herd there that would that would be good. That that's a good goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it it's all that's why it's also interesting because it there's so many unknowns. You know, nobody's done what I've done where I'm doing it. So, 
it's kind of kind of learn as you go, really. Get your work cut out for you, but that's that's what makes it enjoyable, right? Yeah, exactly. Just yeah. be just be obsessed at making it the best property you can, and it will be right. Yep, yep. Have you done any elk hunting? No, I have not done any elk hunting. That's one I haven't done, and um, it would be it'd be uh, kind of interesting to go out on a elk hunt and and call them in and get them up close enough I can shoot with my bow and. Yeah, yeah. It's there's nothing else like it. I went. Uh, I was managing that property in Missouri, and I went to I went to Southern Colorado, one time private ranch, and I didn't even kill an elk, but um, just the experience of being out there at first light, fog in the valleys, elk bugling. I mean, I went home, and I'd wake up at night. I could still hear the elk bugling in my ears. You know. Oh yeah. And I just. I told myself there's a will, there's a way I, I I'm going to find my way out West one of these days and, and do something like that. And, and luckily this fell right into my lap. So. Yeah. That's, it's always nice, you know, cut kind of, kind of like uh, the turkeys when you get out there and, and, and you start gobbling, they gobbling back and then you, you close the door and they're gobbling at you and you, you know, the train comes by, they're gobbling at the train and, and just all kinds of noise in, in, in the spring. And, you know, I, I imagine on the, the elk side, even, even more because they're, the sound they make is just, it's really kind of cool. I think. Yeah. The sound they make and, and the method on how you hunt them. It's just, it's so, I have nothing against hunting whitetails in the Midwest. I had a blast doing it. I still have a blast doing it, but just the, the strategic aspect of of elk hunting is what I like. You know, it, I feel like I'm playing chess with an animal. It's it's cat and mouse, and they're always just out of range or just over the hill or working your wind or trying to get the high ground on you. And you've always got to try and counteract that. And you're always on foot. You're always active. And I just really enjoy the game of of elk hunting. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a little different. What if somebody was going to go out on elk hunt, what what kind of advice would you give them before they go on the hunt? Um, first and foremost, um, I guess just the the things that really popped out and have screamed at me in the last three years of the basic fundamentals, and I'm no expert here, but just things that I've observed is, uh. You don't really even have to mention wind because we all know what's going to happen when an elk gets downwind. So, and not to mention when you're in the mountains, you really have no consistent wind. You've got thermals coming down, going up, and then you might have a consistent wind during the day. But trying to play that wind is always difficult. But what what I would say is most important is is call less than you think you should, and always try and take the high ground on the animal if if that opportunity presents itself. If you feel like you can get above that animal and parallel your wind versus having your wind perfect and being on the same altitude as him, it, it's I don't know what it is, but those the especially the bulls when you get calling at them and trying to pull them to you, they always want to try and take the high ground on you while also getting your wind. 
And so it, it kind of lays out a, a good little blueprint for you when you are working the bull. It's like, okay, if I'm calling here, I need, I need a guy uphill from me 20 yards and probably, you know, another 20 yards closer to that bull. Cause he's going to try and circle. He's going to try and get your wind. And most of the time he's going to try and circle on the top side from what I've noticed. And, um, and then in that situation, I feel like I've noticed <clears throat> it's very similar to turkey calling in the in the sense that you never really want to give them what they want to hear. You you just want to tease them a little bit. And the buglings and stuff like that, I, I know there's guys who are absolutely phenomenal at it and could probably make me look like a kindergartner out there, but referring to the cow calling, you almost want to sound like a cow that's not interested or half interested and, and is almost working away getting quieter and, and losing ground on that bull because that's gonna it's gonna trigger curiosity and curiosity will kill the cat every time yeah it it's it's how you position yourself if you can get on a break and you've got a bull coming from this direction and you can get over the back side of that break to where he has to commit he has to come up to the high ground and commit to see you and see where that sound is coming from, that's where you're gonna get your shot because he's willing to make that commitment. Where if you put him on level ground, he's gonna hang up at a hundred yards because he can see 50 yards in front of him because of the way the terrain lays. So there, there's a lot of different little factors like that that I'm always trying to throw in. And they're not always a hundred percent, but they're definitely, they definitely help you out. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. You know, you're on one side of the hill and the bull's on the other side of the hill and he actually has to commit to get over the crest of it. So now he's kind of slid at the top of the hill so you can see him real easy and he may not be able to see you because you're you're hidden and everything else. And so that Correct. It's down to you. Yeah, and in the moment, it, it kind of goes against your instincts. A lot of times you want to cut, you want to, take that last 50 yards you want to get to the top of the hill and take that last little bit of distance on that animal where if you if you hang back and you're a little more reserved on your calling i feel like that's it's gonna it's gonna increase your chances of him committing within bow range is if he can't see you and he has to commit to where you want him to commit to in order to get your shot that that's that's some good advice. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. And and of course not doing much elk hunting. You know, I I don't know those stories. So that's some good information. We get out there, have to think about that, you know. Yeah. Well then you gotta make the shot and I've had my share of mess ups. Like I said, I'm no <laughs> professional here. <laughs> yeah, we we all have our, our share of mess ups in, in shooting a bow and yeah, hopefully they're not too many and you can spread them out for a long ways, but you know, that's that's just one of the things with archery and, and well, even shooting with a gun, you know, you're, mm -hmm. you're going to, you're going to get that shot and you're going to mess it up. And uh, hopefully you practice enough that you don't have to think about it. It's just, you, you do everything process, you know, go through, shoot, 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 and shoot and do a lot of shooting. And, and now then it's just a, a habit. You don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. And I, you know, that, that was one of the hardest habits I guess I had to break is because I've, I've hunted whitetails on the ground and pigs and everything else. You know, I, I felt like I had a pretty good ground game on, you know, concealing myself and, and, and stuff like that. And when I started elk hunting, I, I would always 
try and retreat to cover and try and conceal myself and, and hide in a place where I could draw. But after hunting them for a few years and advice from some guys that I work with who have been doing a lot longer than I have, man, if you've got a bull uh, 50 yards and he's coming and you've got a tree, just stand in front of the tree. It, they are not whitetails. They cannot pick you out if you're not moving. It doesn't seem right. So I would always screw myself over by doing that. I'd always put myself in a bad spot thinking that I needed the concealment to to get my bow drawn back or, you know, so that he wouldn't see me when he's coming in because I thought it was too open of a scenery or whatever. And I screwed myself over with that several times. I, I learned that it's like um, it's like that movie Jurassic Park. Yeah. When they get out of the car and the guy tells the kids not to move. It's very similar to that. As long as you don't move, they don't see you. But I, I would also argue that their their motion detection compared to a whitetail is probably better. Where, you know, a whitetail, if you stand on the front side of a tree or even a mule deer, you stand on the front side of the tree, they're going to spot you from 50 yards away and start blowing. An elk won't. As long as you don't move, they'll run you right over. So I had to learn the hard way. Let them just walk straight at you. Don't try and get concealed. And then in the whitetail world, a lot of times I'm obsessed with stopping. I won't shoot a moving animal. So I, I'm always trying to give them a grunt or whatever to, to stop a whitetail. Or an elk, you can kind of just use your draw cycle to stop them because that's going to be the first movement they see. And so when you draw, when you decide to move, you're holding dead still and, and they finally commit and they're within range and you decide, okay, I'm going to draw my bow. They're just going to stop and they're going to stare and you take your shot. It, it's, it's a hard thing to force yourself to do when, when you grew up hunting whitetails your whole life and, and you're just, you're so wired and so uh, pre-programmed to believe that that animal's just going to bust as soon as you try to draw your bow. And that's not the case with elk. It's just different, you know? Yeah, that's interesting where they're, they're keeping the movement and then they're going to try and figure out what the movement is. So if you get all draw back and then you stop and don't move, then, then they're kind of trying to figure out what you are. They don't know. They yep. just need movement to try and figure out what the movement is. So they're going to stare at you and hopefully they give you a shot. Um, Correct. And then, you know, they turn enough broadside that you can get your shot off. And I guess that's why, you know, you see some of these videos, uh, the archers are coming out that the elk is within inches of the end of the broadhead. They're mm -hmm. full draw and, and almost touching the, the elk. And, yeah. and now, now I kind of know why they don't see you move. And if they don't smell you, then, you know, how, how is their nose compared to like a whitetail? Um, it's really good. I, the one thing I've noticed where they, I would say fall short compared to a whitetail would be, they don't seem to be affected by a boot trail. Occasionally they will, they'll get your, where you've walked and they'll smell and they won't like it. But most of the time they won't even, they won't even pay attention. And that could be due to drier soils out here and stuff like that, drier stuff. And yeah, you know, a whitetail doe will hit your track and every time she'll walk it right to the tree. Yeah. 
you know, she never walks it back to the truck. <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen that where they've come down and, and just kind of walk right up, right up to the tree and kind of sniff around the bottom of the tree. It's like, you're too close. I can't shoot you underneath my tree stand. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, elk, they don't seem to pick it up on the ground quite like a whitetail will. And uh, that's, I, that's one less thing to worry about. They're, they're hard enough to kill the way it is. Yeah. Yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah. But we had, actually this year was my first year guiding hunts and I had two encounters with my boss, Don Barry. He, uh, he had two really close encounters, two really good bulls and one, I mean, we've got it on video, the bull like I was talking, it was a situation where that bull had crested up over the hill and Don had positioned himself right at the top. I mean, he comes up and just screams right in Don's face. And I'm watching from a distance thinking, man, are you going to kill this thing or what? And he never did get his bow drawn back. I, in a scenario like that, you've got to, you got to draw your bow when, when you know they're coming and committing. But you, in that scenario, he, I guess in his defense, he wanted to, get a, a better judge of what the bull was and before he took the shot but I, I was a little more bloodthirsty than he was so <laughs> yeah yeah well when you're not drawn and they're right on top of you that 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 can be tough to get drawn because you're so close yeah 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 that's uh that's interesting you know so many stories i, I like hearing all these different stories of uh um you know what everybody's doing and it, it's just it's just so fun all these stories and uh, i know um you've got you got a lot of videos that you've created and uh, tell us about what what it's like to um be out there hunting and and trying to create some of these videos and um yeah so um the the biggest project i've done this far and i'm gonna i hope i can pick it up again next fall but um, i filmed some hunts for a nonprofit organization that some guys that i work with created it's called god's country for our heroes and we take wounded veterans out hunting we donate the hunts on private land we guide them we help them we feed them everything and um that was that was a really fun project to to get to meet some veterans who have kind of had a, a bad roll of the dice, I guess, and can't really, can't really indulge in the outdoors the way you and I do. And we were able to help them do that. And then, like you said, I was able to document it, but um, the, the, the video and, and picture stuff is, it's a whole nother ball of wax. It's, it's very challenging. I'm extremely picky on my shots and stuff like that. I I don't love filming hunts. I'm more geared toward just wildlife photography and wildlife videography because hunts are so, they're so hard to get everything, get all the pieces you need to, to build right. a story that's gonna be interesting for everyone to listen to. And sometimes all those pieces are there and other times you're just, I feel like you're just trying to scrap stuff together and, and you're putting out a bad product just to get the hunt out there. And, and that part is, is definitely challenging because you know how many variables there are when you're hunting and, and oh, yeah. crazy. different things can happen at the drop of a hat and you miss a shot, double punch record button, you're out of focus, whatever it is. It's a, it's a whole nother level of challenge, but, uh, 
I would also say that it, it's like a sport in itself. You know, it, you get a, you get a high off of guiding, you get a high off of, off of videoing a great haunt or just, you know, being part of a great haunt. And it's, it's really kind of where my, where my heart is pulling me now more than I guess harvesting animals myself is is documenting it not not only hunting them but just you know the other day I went on a mountain lion hunt and and uh, you know we didn't shoot the mountain lion but I got incredible pictures and video and unbelievable scenery we were up at the top of the little wolf mountains we could see clear to Billings on one side and see clear to eastern Montana on the other side and nothing but mountains barking up there it's, it's pretty incredible yeah yeah yeah, it, it is. And yeah, I know, you know, we was talking about this on, on a previous podcast, but you, you know, when, when you're, you know, he was on some hunts where the other people were, were video and, you know, you get the video of the kill, but then you don't have anything else. You got to go back and create other videos to kind of lead up to it. And yeah, I can see how that's, you know, that, that can be a little challenging in editing videos, you know, yes. YouTube channel, you know, now the podcast, I don't edit those. I just, put them out like it is. And when it goes up to YouTube, I put the little thumbnails at the end and, and, uh, you know, other than that, but all the rest of the videos I create, I edit them. And, mm -hmm. you, you know, you, if you got an hour long video, you have to watch the whole hour to figure out what you want to keep. And sometimes watching it again, watching it again, cut and fit it together. And yeah, um, you could easily take an, an hour and a half long video and spend three hours to make a 45 minute video. Yes, I'm I'm glad you said something about that because I that's that's part of my hang up on it is I love doing the video stuff, especially for myself. But and I call myself a videographer and a photographer, but I'm not an editor. I, I don't love it. I can do it and sometimes I'm good at it, sometimes not so much, but I am not an editor. I, it's not something I have a love and passion for. I just do it because it's part of the process. Yeah, and and I use DaVinci Resolve. Yeah, that I edit with. Um, you know, a lot of movie studios will use that, and there's so many things it'll do. I'm I'm discovering new things of do because you know I do you know basic just basic stuff, and it's like okay, I want to do something different. I want to do something different, and and then you just kind of add on and add on, and there's there just so many things you can do. And sometimes I that's kind of the fun part is is putting in some of these other features and transitioning yeah. from one clip to another clip so it's not just here and then also jump to the next one you, know, you got to kind of transition and and you know put something in and put text on it and have the text scrolling around and right and there's there's people out there that are so talented that can do that every day and, and just crank out amazing inspirational stuff and and i'm the type where I got to be like, I got to be in the right mood to put out something good. If you put a bunch of pressure on me, I don't feel like I can be that creative. <laughs> yeah. You, you take your video and, and have somebody else actually put them together for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's how they do it in Hollywood, right? Yeah. The, the, per, the cameraman doesn't, doesn't edit the videos and somebody else is no. editing them and, and then you're narrating them and then you can, you can take and narrate on top of your videos you know, mm -hmm. sometimes you can tone the voice down or shut it off completely. And, you know, you can hear a little bit of background of what's going on originally, but then you're talking over it. And, and you know, that that's where you're talking about different stuff going on. Because when you're out there hunting, you can't talk very loud. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you're kind of whispering or whatever, and and nobody can figure out what you're saying because you can't hear what you're saying, and you know what you and and you're listening to it. It's like, what did I say? And it was you that said it. So yeah. they narrate over them, and there's all kinds of things you can do with them, and mm-hmm. and sometimes like that's the fun part is putting all those things together, doing different, trying different things, and right. You know, I've I'm I, I right now I'm using the free version, but I'm going to go to the paid version of DaVinci and because there's other features in there that I'm just like, oh, I want to try this. Oh, it's in the right. paid version. And, you know, it's it's 300 bucks one time shot. So it's yeah. it's cheap. Now, some of the yeah. other stuff you want to do, you there's other things you can add to it. But, um, you know, right now it's just it's just so much fun, I think, to, to create some of those videos. And, you, you know, when you're you're getting different angles and then, you know, the camera is not in the right spot. And then, you know, it's like, okay, I've already done this. I'm not tearing this part apart just to do the video again. So now then yes, like, then you have to kind of go around it and. Yeah. Yeah. You lose a piece of the video and then it's like, well, I didn't record this piece. I lost the video somehow. You know, it's like, okay, <laughs> skip forward. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's kind of what's unfortunate about, I shouldn't say it's unfortunate, but there's a lot of times where I'm guiding where it's like, man, if I had a camera in my hands, but there's a lot of times it's like, I just can't do both at one time. I can't guide and call and glass and film and drive the ranger and, you know, everything plus try and film or take pictures on top of it. It, it can be really challenging, but man, I have missed some amazing shots when I was just guiding or whatever. And, and that's, I think that's, what's pretty cool about where we're at now with cell phones is, you know, when I, when I first picked up a, a DSLR camera, it was significantly better than the camera on my phone. Yeah. And now if, if I have good lighting, boy, it's tough to, it's, I mean, it's, it's close, you know, a new Samsung shooting 4k at 60 frames per second. It, it's pretty darn good video right out of your phone. Yeah, and and I've got it. I got a fairly new one, and I do except for the podcast, which I do on my my computer at home. Um, I got a Logitech nine twenty camera, which you know I was amazed at how much clearer that was. You know, on this camera, you can tell if I didn't shave this morning. You know, the other one was it was just all brillery, and yeah. Everything else I've done on my phone, I use my phone for everything else. And the quality of the, the videos are, are just amazing how clear they are. And mm-hmm. you've got the zoom features and, and you got panoramic features. I got slow motion, which I haven't done any slow motion yet, but one of these days I'm going to try it, you know, maybe when I'm shooting my bow, record it in slow motion so I can see what's going on and just create right. some, some different videos like that. And, and, you know, and you know, sometimes you record them in the um, the vertical mode, but you really want them horizontal. I don't want to re-record it because I've already missed. I've done what I need to do, and I'm not going to untear everything apart. Like if you're building something, you know, once I cut it and assemble it and glue it together or bolt it on, I don't want to unbolt it all and just record. So I can actually rotate it and then blow it up and all yep. kinds of different things. So yeah, that's kind of neat when you can do all that stuff and I went through when I first started creating videos. I forget what the program was, and and I'd take I'd take the video 
and then I'd run it through there to edit it, and it would make it kind of make the pictures feel smaller and just all kind of goofy stuff. And then I found another one that a little bit better, but not not what I wanted. And then so I'm looking for different video editing programs, and I come across DaVinci Resolve probably about two years ago, yeah. two years ago, something like that. And I was like, oh man, this movie studios use this to create movies. Yeah. And I was like, they got a free version. So I started yeah. using that and then getting more and more features and more and more features. And it's like, I could use this for years and never need the paid version. But yeah. then now I got to the point where it's like, okay, I want to take, like, and see some of the videos, you know, like on the YouTube, you'll have the little uh, subscribe button and the bell and you click on that. And I need to be able to remove the background off of it, an image I create like that. That's the free version. So I got to the point where there's things I want to do that's in the paid version that I don't have access to in the free version. So I'm going to go ahead and get that here one of these days and, you know, watch my YouTube channel. You're going to see different things showing up because I'm learning how to do stuff. And there's things in there that I, I've seen how to do them and, you know, make make different logos and screens coming in and doing all kinds of weird stuff and spinning around and, you know, all kind mm -hmm. of cool stuff and I can do that in the free version. I just got to sit down and take some time to figure out how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's insane. Like it, you can do that with a, a free version. And and my dad started uh, filming hunts and stuff for hunter specialties uh, way back in like the early two thousands. I remember him telling me their first editing setup. I don't quote me on it, but it was like, it was like eight or $10,000 for their first editing setup so that they could edit and record on the VHS tapes. And now it's, it's free on your computer. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember recording on VHS tapes. Yeah. I actually went on a hog hunt down in the South part of Texas. And uh, uh, that's when I, they're supposed to be set up for an archery, but they didn't set up for archery. They always, you know, bait and stuff. Well, the last day I hadn't got a, a deer or a, a deer. <laughs> a hog or a javelina yet and the guy went down he did rifle so I, he'd already got his so um i used his rifle and so he's recording me shooting and this javelina comes out and i didn't i missed i'm like first i missed i ended up getting one later but uh so at that time i had a vcr player that i could do frame advancing most of them you just gotta play stop play stop play stop this yep. one, i could actually dial in frame advance so i want to see where my bullet hit because i couldn't tell because i looked at the scope so i i take it there and frame advance frame advance and one of the frames i actually caught the vapor trail from the bullet mm. on a yep. vcr it just so happened <laughs> it took a picture and that bullet was mid-flight <laughs> and then i go yep. through, i see where i yeah, hit you know shouldn't have believe they're not very big you know they're only you know maybe six eight inches tall <laughs> yeah but that was that was interesting how it was able to catch on such low quality VCR tape that was able to catch the the bullet mid mid flight. Yeah, and we we've learned, you know, all of us guides now, or the the guides that I work with, like when you have a client and he's at full draw, it it's law you should have your phone out and recording because we have it and we can and it's so valuable. Like you're saying, you were able to go frame by frame back. And now we can do that with our cell phones. We can shoot it at 
60 frames per second, 120 frames per second in 4K and, and go back frame by frame and see exactly where a client hits an animal and, and, and you know, kind of make your decision from there on whether you're going to press forward or not. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's you know, good just, you know, as, as the guide and somebody, it's like, okay, now you got this video, you're, you're actually, you can see where your arrow hit and it's like, okay, this was a little too far back. Mm -hmm. we're going to wait. We're going to come back after we eat breakfast or lunch or whatever it is and come back in three or four hours, you know, and, yeah. you know, it's so, okay, let's go find a first blood trail and let's mark it. Yeah. And, and then we'll come back because they're going to run off far enough. You can go find the first blood trail and, and, you know, if you can find your arrow, if it's, if it passed through and, and then you know where to start looking from there and then you can mark, okay, it went this way, you know, maybe find yeah. a couple of blood. So you at least have a trail to, to go and you know i've i've done that before and uh you know didn't get the best hit um i just got in my tree stand i want to be there at four about 10 after this deer come trotting by some kids were up further north of me and kicked the deer up and is running by and i'm thinking okay as it's coming do i follow it or just wait for it and i shot end up getting a, a gut shot yeah like okay so i waited at about an hour and a half for my guys hunting with to come by and we went and found the blood trail and so this is you know maybe two hours after we'd shot it started walking about 30 yards from where i shot it it got up and run and we looked okay blood trail so come back the next night and we'd had about four inches of snow and it got down to about 20. Uh, we found it i found a yeah. pile of snow that had a lump underneath it and it happened to be the deer <laughs> you, yeah. you know so you, you know one of those things i i that on the last pie guys we i talked about that one but and that was interesting you know how you're you've got that much snow there is no blood trail there's no footprints yeah. in the mud yeah Chris, just walk around it and hopefully you can find it and and we found it mm. i come across it and it was still warm inside yeah so yeah that, it reminds me so this year we had uh i i would say the most memorable hunt i had was with one of my owners he's 79 years old and he was bound to determine he's going to go elk hunting and i'm like hell yeah let's do it and um we really struggled at first to find a bull of, that was big enough caliber for him to shoot and it was day day three or four and it was raining like a son of a gun clouds were rolling in so when we got up high you you we were fighting the clouds to see down and, and find a bull, but um, it was just right at the, the crack of dawn. And I had another guide with me from the Western part of the state. He was helping me out. I have to give him credit. He wanted to go to this spot extra early in the dark and, and be there, you know, in the dark. I'm like, all right, done deal. So it, it's it piss pouring rain. Our hunter stayed in the ranger because it was so cold and windy and rainy. And I just caught a glimpse. Well, first Brad spotted this bull. He said, I see a bull over here. So I, I would go over there. I'd set up my scope. I look in the scope and here it's this bull that another client had actually hit earlier in the season. And I'm talking like a Magnum 380, 390 freaking giant bull and i can tell he's just barely he's kind of gimping i can tell he's real peaked not doing so good from being hit 
And uh, long story short, we we put a couple moves on him, and the next day, we were we were waiting in a spot for him to come out. And uh, my guide had actually spotted him on his way to us across a different valley, and and we we ended up going after him. But what was funny is my my hunter he likes to shoot off of one of those um i think it's called a uh, dead death grip have you heard of those uh-uh so it's like a tripod and it's it's kind of the same concept as a lead sled only it's portable so you got a tripod and you've literally got a vice up on the top of the thing that you can vice the gun right into and he i didn't have one all i had was these shocky sticks and he wasn't real comfortable shooting off these shocky sticks and he's 79 you know i get it we're not spring chickens anymore but <laughs> when when i had him practice i had him put a a lead sled on a blue cooler and he's like boy that's you know that's rock solid i could i could take a long shot with that so when we're chasing after this bull that that had been hit shot bad you know and we're chasing after this bull and ended up having to walk a few hundred yards and I'm dragging. Oh, I had a tripod, a backpack, binos, a blue cooler, a lead sled. <laughs> I drug it all with me <laughs> so that you could try and make the shot. And we ended up bumping the bull. It, it was just a bummer. It broke my heart. I wanted to, to kill one, but it was, it was pretty comical. <laughs> yeah. You're kind of the pack mule. <laughs> yeah. It's exactly. Everything oh, in yeah cooler and all yeah it's uh um I, I know that when i when i'm at rifle season this last time I, I i've got a chair i carried along with me to sit on on the ground at the overlooking the the field where i'm i'm going in a hunt and i've got my tripod with me because i want to video it all. so i got my phone i got the tripod so i'm carrying the tripod carrying that i've got my rifle uh, and got my backpack and i was like I'm I'm like a pack mule and, and I'm just carrying down everything down there. and I didn't have to go very far because we just pull in on one side of the hill and I just walked over the hill and and down probably 100 yards. But, you know, I set up about 70 yards away from uh, where I, they were going to come through, which had a ladder stand down there. Um, but, you know, you got all that stuff and and I can actually control my phone off my watch. And I can see it. I can zoom in and and stuff on there. And I found yeah. my phone. I could just kind of swipe down and get it started quicker because you don't have a lot of time when they come in. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting up there, and here comes this this deer. I see it. So I get the camera started, and then I, I I'm watching, and then I'm trying to zoom in, and then the crazy camera gets it. Don't know what where to focus, so it's going in and out, in and out, in and out, and it's, it's trying to zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out, and so I kind of back to back off, and then. And then it went running off, and then I seen two more does come running through the field off where they went, and I'm like, oh man, I was hoping she'd come across on my side of the property. Yeah, yeah, but didn't. So uh, I think we might we might put up a feeder down there and one of those gravity feeders and, and yeah. get the food so they come on the property because they don't come on the property a lot, mostly at night. Except mm -hmm. that, that I did see them there. I do see them once in a while, but. Not as often as I'd like, so I want to try and get them there, you know, over the winter time. Get them used to coming there, and and get a feeder going out there, and then and then of course before hunting season, you have to pull your your feeder. I think like Nebraska, it's thirty days before hunting season starts. But yeah, you know, I don't want to don't want to feed them then, but they're used to coming there, and right. 
you know, get get some get some get them a reason to come onto the property during the daylight. Right. What's what kind of terrain are you hunting? What kind of access do you have and stuff like that in Nebraska? Um, well, where where I'm at anyway, um, I can actually we can actually drive our four wheeler when there's not crops in the field to the one property, uh, right up to where we're gonna. We could sit on the back of the four wheeler and hunt. Okay. Uh, we don't. We pull it off further because we don't we don't want them to see it if they're coming through. Uh, the other property is mostly just that there's a, a row of trees around the property. There's two fields. There's an alfalfa field and either corn or beans, depending on what they're putting in at the year. And it, it's basically just a, a pass through. That's the, it's a it's a road they pass through. They don't really hang out in the in the property too much. Um, you know, especially after the corn's gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No reason to come in there until the corn's gone. They probably come in for the corn, but. Um, yeah, that's the two properties I have. Uh, one's a little over a mile from my house to the the highways, about a mile, and then just cross the highway, and there's the property. It's like it's like eighty acres, and then mm -hmm. the other property is about two miles away. <laughs> yeah, and and it's probably eighty, a hundred acres, something like that. I don't remember now, but we're, we're going to try and see if we can find something a little more trees on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, getting and, it's getting harder and harder to find access to find ground you can hunt you know what yeah well a lot of it's disappearing if you you know you're too far away from the city then it's a long drive but you right. know, close to the, the bigger cities and you know i'm a little village of 168 people but oh I'm, nice i'm about 35 to 40 miles, 45 miles to Omaha and same to Lincoln and same to Fremont. So I've got two, the two largest cities in Nebraska uh, are within, you know, 45 minutes for me. So, yeah, you know, there's, there's some public lands that, you know, we might try some of those next year, but you can't drive onto those. So <laughs> got to right. walk back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be another another big pointer for people on elk hunting because most of the time when people elk hunt, they're they're on public ground, and like where I live, I'm I'm about 25 miles from a pot machine, so I we <laughs> live in the middle of nowhere. And if you're willing to put the miles on, if you're willing to do some driving, you can find some pretty respectable hunting it's going to be in no man's land it's probably not going to look like the best hunting but i've seen i've seen nice bulls and nice mule deer on just random state sections out in the middle of nowhere that no one will probably ever hunt yeah there's a lot lot to be said about you know if you go in there and you've got a mile hike into your hunting property um mm -hmm. most of us don't want to go that far no, the older I get, the less I want to walk that far. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Walking that far, I'd I'd, I'd be done then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's 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 challenging. I I do like the fact that the the elk and mule deer are kind of always they're always changing that home range on you. Uh, a whitetail, it's like he finds his home range, especially as he matures, and he really settles into a lot of times a, a tight routine, a tight pattern from food to bedding, and, and finds an area that he likes and he sticks with it, where it, these elk and mule deer and antelope, they kind of give you an advantage in that sense because they don't seem to get stuck in one spot. 
they don't seem to get stuck on the neighbor's property and find a little haven. You know, they're a migratory animal and eventually they're going to move when it comes time to rut or, or anything like that. And I feel like you could really capitalize on that if you did your homework, especially in Montana. Yeah. Yeah. Montana's got a lot of open, open ground and it's a wild place, man. Yeah. Wildfires and cats and bears and people fighting and everything else. So <laughs> the the reason I got this job out here, it, it, have you ever seen the TV show Yellowstone? Yeah. So I had never seen it. I had, I had never seen it until I knew I was going to move out here. And, and the ranch that I'm managing was, like I said, uh, operating cattle, cattle ranch for over 100 years. And the guy who was coming up and supposed to be taking it over, his name was Tyler Pennington, uh, rest in peace. His wife killed him in the house that they were living in. And so they didn't have anyone to take over the ranch. So basically they were kind of forced to sell and that's where I fell into place. But it's, that's what I mean by it's a wild place. When you're, when you're that far out in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> you gotta keep your ducks in a row. I feel like you can lose your marbles pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and kill your spouse, which I would, you know. But it it's it's a wild place. There's wild people, wild animals, but it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds like it'd be a lot of fun. You got all kinds of different animals to hunt. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's. That's what's neat is they've got the, the spring bear season. And right now in the winter when I'm used to doing nothing, you know, we're going to keep running lions and keep doing that. And I might shoot one. I don't know. Yeah, we, we have, we, of course, the whitetails. And then out western Nebraska, we have that mule, mule deer. We got some pronghorn. Uh, of course, turkeys, of course. And, you know, there's bobcats here to hunt. Uh, there are some lions here. Um, yeah. you know, game parks wouldn't admit it for a long time until one got killed on the highway here. Um, but I've seen a couple of them, you know, hunting partner and I was coming home one time and, uh, uh this, this mountain just run, uh, just a little small one, just run across the road. And, and it was like, okay, what was that? It's like, that wasn't a normal animal that run across this. And, and then at the farmer's hunting, we're up on top of the hill and we're looking down at the bottom of the hill and they got those, the big round bales of hay. And we, we've seen something jump up on top of it. Well, it wasn't a coyote because the tail was way too long. So that yeah. was another time we've seen a lion. And, yeah. you know, farmers said, you know, back in the sixties, they'd see footprints in, in the hills there. You're mm -hmm. not going to see them now pretty much because next to the property, they built a whole, whole bunch of houses, um, mm -hmm. you know, that's what disappears a lot of the hunting properties is next thing you know, there's where you're hunting, there's houses there. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to see how all this stuff is changing, especially with the predator sense conservation has been incorporated in the U S it, you know, kind of like the elk herd that I'm trying to manage. It's only been there since the early eighties. Well, prior, you know, prior to market hunting, Back in the 1800s, when there was a healthy elk population there, you also would have found bighorn sheep there. You also would have found grizzly bears there. So my mind, I'm not a big fan of grizzlies. And as of right now, there's none in our area. But if I was going to prophesize, I would say that within about a 10-year period, 
the grizzlies are going to show back up because their food sources is back right. and reestablished. So, yeah, if there's no food source, they're going to move to where the food is. And now that there's there's food there, you know, they'll they'll move back in. Yeah, elk moved in because probably where they was at, you know, the herd was getting large enough. You know, not going to support it. So they kind of go, just keep migrating down. It's like, oh, we got food, got food, got food. Keep yep. going. The bears will follow. <laughs> yep. And it's it's a similar deal where Montana Department of Conservation, they don't really admit to where they actually are. Yeah. As, as the crow flies right now, they admit that there's grizzlies 70 miles from us. So it's... If you're being realistic, they're probably going to be passing through in the next few years. Maybe not a resident population of grizzlies, but they're going to be passing through. And something I think we need to keep our eye on. I think we need a season on them personally, but it's yeah. that'll probably never happen. So, well, not until they start getting so big, <laughs> the, yeah. the numbers get so large, then then they're going to have to have something. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I replace this, you know, they hire a professional hunter to, come, hunter to come in and clear out the herd. Well, it costs you for those guys. Well, as hunters, right. we're, we're going to pay you to take care of your problem. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, that's, that, that's sometimes the, some of these people don't, don't understand, you know, the fact yeah. that, you know, we'll, we'll solve your problem for you. <laughs> Right. Yeah. But, you know, meanwhile, they're turning wolves loose in Colorado. I mean, you can you can argue that both ways that, yeah, they were once there. But and my argument is that the wolf that they cut loose in Colorado was a Canadian timber wolf, which is not what was there indigenously. That would have been like, right. a, you know, a, a prairie wolf. And so you just you unleashed a, a monster in an area that they're not supposed to be in and it's hard enough to to elk hunt in colorado and so i i don't know the the whole predator thing is always a, a strange one there's always people pulling both directions really hard on it yeah so if you're going to introduce an animal it needs to be what was originally there before not a different species and exactly. so many times that they'll introduce an animal that's not native there and then there's no predator for it so then it gets out of whack um mm -hmm. same thing with with crops you know it's like yep. oh, bring in something that this grows really good and next thing you know it takes over um with yep. the lines <laughs> you know yep. not in for a food source and and next thing you know they're all over the place and and um actually it's one of the things you can't eat out of your yard <laughs> unless you put chemicals on it but <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah don't don't put weed killer down and then plan on eating the dandelions but <laughs> right Yeah, that's uh there there's so many things that you know gotta keep them straight and you know just just in fishing regulations like on bass, you know, sometimes it'll be a 21 inch length length limit on the bass, and then all of a sudden uh, game parks will reduce it down to 15 inches and everybody just has a big uproar. And I, I actually seen a, a, a thread I was I was looking at that changed it on, on one of the lakes around here. And, and then somebody's getting complaining, and, and then so the game warden got on and actually explained why you raise it and you lower it. You know, yeah. if, you, if it's 21 inch, they eat a lot of bait fish, you know, like your bluegill yeah. and your crappy and stuff. Well, th that gets lower, it can't support the big fish. So you take the big fish out, let the bait fish grow, 
and then it gets the other way and then you raise the limit you just kept bouncing it back and forth and and you know that's right. you know that that's what you know they have to do with the deer you know around here it's like okay how many did we kill how many's out there do we need to raise the limits lower the limits um do we issue more season choice tags which is two you know one or two antler i think this last year it was just one but uh, and some some years it's two antler this year on a tag and yeah. you know so how many of the tags are we going to issue are we going to issue 20,000 tags or unless you're 10,000 shears. So they, they constantly need to know. So that's why when you when you kill an animal and they want you to report it, you need to report it. So it, so they get an accurate number so they know exactly what's there because they're looking to see, okay, how many did we kill this year versus last year? And in Nebraska, the numbers are down from last year. Yeah. You know, yeah. So each year is going to be different. You know, Maybe next year it'll be higher. Right. <laughs> we never know. Yeah. There's no cookie cutter system. It has to be a variable slot, whether it's fish or or ungulates. It's it's always going to be changing. And luckily, we have a conservation department. If they're doing a good job, to to recognize that that slot needs to be adjusted one way or the other. Yeah, and so, it's like you know, always put out. It's like okay, here's here's the um, you know the permits for next year. This is what we're going to put out. They've analyzed all the the data and they've done their surveys and everything else. And so now they know what they're going to put out for the next year. And, and then to get done with that, they do it again for the next year and every year. And um, yeah, I'm glad they're doing it. So we actually have them. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Well, Hey Roy, I hate to cut you short, but I got to get my boys to a jujitsu match here pretty soon. Oh, they're in jujitsu, huh? Yeah. They, they like combat sports or I like them in combat sports anyway. Yeah. I did yeah. keto for about 20 years. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I might I, do it again, but I don't know. At my age, I don't know if I'm going to take the falls too well. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we boxed. Uh, we boxed for a while. I still like to box and stuff in, in my basement. And and now that they're in jujitsu, we wrestle most nights. And so it's, it's, it's a lot of fun watching a five and seven-year-old pick up some moves and then you know after a few weeks they're bringing down dad you know they know the <laughs> they know the the sweet spots on how to get me down and uh, yeah how to roll over. it's pretty cool yeah they'll, they'll they'll learn they'll pick it up pretty quick <laughs> yeah well get them to their class to their um or the tournament they're fighting in no it's just a practice tonight. Oh, just practice okay yeah get, yeah. get them to the practice and hey it's been great talking with you and we'll do this again sometime. And um, yeah, when you start getting some guide guide services going on, where you're looking for uh, people to come up to guide, hey, we'll get back on the podcast again, and we'll we'll talk about that and and hear some more hunting stories. And I always like to have a lot of hunting stories. I I, I like those, and yeah. a lot of people that are listening or, or watching like to hear those hunting stories. And and yeah, we'll we'll get the, we'll do this again. It's been really great talking with you. Remember, you can uh, watch the video on Arch Talk 101 Facebook group, as well as on my YouTube channel, Learn to Fix It Yourself, and the Audible, it's on the audio, the podcast, is <laughs> on Audible, as well as on Spotify and other places. So pick it up. If you have any questions, get a hold of us. We'll be glad to answer your questions. Thanks for awesome. being on the show, Isaac. It was, yeah, it was a pleasure, pleasure meeting you. Thank you for having me on, Roy. Yeah. My name is Roy Caterbury, and I've been hosting on Archer Talk 101.